This is the Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month's story, by Bernard Malamud, was first published in 1956. It's called A Summer's Reading. What are you reading? George hesitated and said, I got a list of books in the library once, and now I'm going to read them this summer. He felt strange and a little unhappy saying this, but he wanted Mr. Catanzara to respect him. A Summer's Reading was chosen from the archives by Alexander Hemon. Hemon was born in Bosnia, which was then part of Yugoslavia, in 1964, and moved to Chicago in 1992. He started writing in English a few years later and published his first story in The New Yorker in 1999. His latest novel, The Lazarus Project, came out in May. He joins me from WBEZ in Chicago. Hi, Sasha. Hello. Sasha, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Malamud was almost as well-known in this country as Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, the two other American Jewish writers whom he was often grouped with. Since he died in 1986, his degree of fame has gone down a little, while Roth's and Bellows have risen. Did you, did you discover Malamud when you were a teenager in Sarajevo, or did you read him after you moved here? How did he come into your life? I remember reading uh, The Magic Barrel, the book of stories, in one night when I was a teenager in Sarajevo. And then I completely forgot everything about that, except for the image of a barrel in which a manuscript is burning, which is, you know, a central image in the book. And then I reread Malamud a few years back, pretty much all of his books. And I can see why he was so well admired and deservedly so in the 60s, but I could also see why his fame waned in the 70s and 80s. Why do you think that was? Well, his later books were not as good, and he was essentially, and I mean this in the best sense, he was essentially a 19th century writer, or at least early 20th century, pre-modernist 20th century which to me bespeaks, among other things, you know, warmth and humanism. There was um, far more likely to be challenged in the 70s and 80s. When you first read him, when you read The Magic Barrel in Sarajevo, was it in translation or were you Yeah, reading? of course. No, yeah. it was a translation. And then when you moved here, you read him in English. Yes. Was there a difference in those two experiences? Well, as a teenager, I read compulsively and passionately, and I would often forget what I read. I just remembered the experience of reading. It was like, you know, getting drunk in some ways, which I was also doing as a teenager. <laughs> it's very strange to me that, you know, I remembered loving Malamud, but I could not remember what I loved. And then when I returned to Malamud here, the difference was partly because I read it as an older person. Mm -hmm. And so I, I could admire things that I must have admired when I was a teenager, but I forgot. A summer's reading is, is set on the Lower East Side of New York back in the 1940s when it was a mostly Jewish immigrant neighborhood. Do you think that there's anything else that people should know before they listen to the story? I think that George Stojanovic, Stojanovic implies that the character comes from what was Yugoslavia back then. He's either Serbian or Croatian. Really? Stojanovic, the, the character's name being George Stojanovic, it, it, it's not a Russian name? No, I think it's unlikely. It sounds like a South Slavic name. It's certainly not. I don't think it's a Jewish um, last name. Interesting. People have, have usually read this as a Jewish character. But... Yeah, for obvious reasons, because it's the magic barrel, and almost all the characters are Jewish. Mm -hmm. But George Stojanovic is a very, very common uh, South Slavic name in Serbia and Croatia and Bosnia. We'll talk more about A Summer's Reading and about uh, Malamud later in the program. Now here's Alexander Hemon with A Summer's Reading. George Stojanovic was a neighborhood boy who had quit high school on an impulse when he was 16, ran out of patience, and though he was ashamed every time he went looking for a job, when people asked him if he had finished and he had to say no, he never went back to school. 
This summer was a hard time for Jobs, and he had none. Having so much time on his hands, George thought of going to summer school, but the kids in his classes would be too young. He also considered registering in a night high school, only he didn't like the idea of the teachers always telling him what to do. He felt they had not respected him. The result was he stayed off the streets and in his room most of the day. He was close to 20 and had needs with the neighborhood girls, but no money to spend, and he couldn't get more than an occasional few cents because his father was poor and his sister Sophie, who resembled George, a tall bony girl of 23, earned very little, and what she had she kept for herself. Their mother was dead, and Sophie had to take care of the house. Very early in the morning, George's father got up to go to work in a fish market. Sophie left at about eight for her long ride in the subway to a cafeteria in the Bronx. George had his coffee by himself, then hung around in the house. When the house, a five-room railroad flat above a butcher store, got on his nerves, he cleaned it up, mopped the floors with a wet mop, and put things away. But most of the time, he sat in his room. In the afternoons, he listened to the ball game. Otherwise... He had a couple of old copies of the World Almanac he had bought long ago, and he liked to read in them, and also the magazines and newspapers that Sophie brought home that had been left on the tables in the cafeteria. They were mostly picture magazines about movie stars and sports figures, also usually the news and mirror. Sophie herself read whatever fell into her hands, although she sometimes read good books. She once asked George what he did in his room all day, and he said he read a lot too. Of what besides what I bring home? Do you ever read any worthwhile books? Some, George answered, although he really didn't. He had tried to read a book or two that Sophie had in the house, but found he was in no mood for them. Lately he couldn't stand made-up stories. They got on his nerves. He wished he had some hobby to work at. As a kid he was good in carpentry, but where could he work at it? Sometimes during the day he went for walks, but mostly... He did his walking after the hot sun had gone down and it was cooler in the streets. In the evening after supper, George left the house and wandered in the neighborhood. During the sultry days, some of the storekeepers and their wives sat in chairs on the thick broken sidewalks in front of their shops, fanning themselves, and George walked past them and the guys hanging out on the candy store corner. A couple of them he had known his whole life, but nobody recognized each other. He had no place special to go, but generally, saving it till the last, he left the neighborhood and walked for blocks till he came to a darkly lit little park with benches and trees and an iron railing giving it a feeling of privacy. He sat on a bench here, watching the leafy trees and the flowers blooming on the inside of the railing, thinking of a better life for himself. He thought of the jobs he had had since he had quit school. Delivery boy, stock clerk, runner, lately working in a factory and he was dissatisfied with all of them. He felt he would someday like to have a good job and live in a private house with a porch on a street with trees. He wanted to have some dough in his pocket to buy things with and a girl to go with so as not to be so lonely, especially on Saturday nights. He wanted people to like and respect him. He thought about these things often, but mostly when he was alone at night. Around midnight he got up, and drifted back to his hot and stony neighborhood. One time while on his walk, George met Mr. Catanzara coming home very late from work. He wondered if he was drunk, but then he could tell he wasn't. 
Mr. Catanzaro, stocky, bald-headed man who worked in a change booth in an IRT station, lived on the next block after George's above a shoe repair store. Nights, during the hot weather, he sat on his stoop in an undershirt reading the New York Times in the light of the shoemaker's window. He read it from the first page to the last, then went up to sleep. And all the time he was reading the paper, his wife, a fat woman with a white face, leaned out of the window, gazing into the street, her thick white arms folded under her loose breast on the window ledge. Once in a while, Mr. Catanzara came home drunk, but it was a quiet drunk. He never made any trouble, only walked stiffly up the street and slowly climbed the stairs into the hall. Though drunk, he looked the same as always, except for his tight walk, the quietness, and that his eyes were wet. George liked Mr. Catanzara because he remembered him giving him nickels to buy lemon ice with when he was a squirt. Mr. Catanzara was a different type than those in the neighborhood. He asked different questions than the others when he met you, and he seemed to know what went on in all the newspapers. He read them as his fat, sick wife watched from the window. "'What are you doing with yourself this summer, George?' Mr. Catanzara asked. "'I see you walking around at night.' George felt embarrassed. "'I like to walk.' "'What are you doing in the day now?' "'Nothing much just right now. I'm waiting for a job.' Since it shamed him to admit he wasn't working, George said, I'm staying home, but I'm reading a lot to pick up my education. Mr. Catanzara looked interested. He mopped his hot face with a red handkerchief. What are you reading? George hesitated, then said, I got a list of books in the library once, and now I'm going to read them this summer. He felt strange and a little unhappy saying this, but he wanted Mr. Catanzara to respect him. How many books are there on it? I never counted them, maybe around a hundred. Mr. Catanzara whistled through his teeth. I figure if I did that, George went on earnestly, it would help me in my education. I don't mean the kind they give you in high school. I want to know different things than they learn there, if you know what I mean. The changemaker nodded. Still and all, one hundred books is a pretty big load for one summer. It might take longer. After you've finished with some, maybe you and I can shoot the breeze about them, said Mr. Catanzara. When I'm finished, George answered. Mr. Catanzara went home and George continued on his walk. After that, though he had the urge to, George did nothing different from usual. He still took his walks at night, ending up in the little park. But one evening the shoemaker on the next block stopped George to say he was a good boy, and George figured that Mr. Catanzara had told him all about the books he was reading. From the shoemaker... It must have gone down the street because George saw a couple of people smiling kindly at him, though nobody spoke to him personally. He felt a little better around the neighborhood and liked it more, though not so much he would want to live in it forever. He had never exactly disliked the people in it, yet he had never liked them very much either. It was the fault of the neighborhood. To his surprise, George found out that his father and Sophie knew about his reading too. His father was too shy to say anything about it. He was never much of a talk in his whole life, but Sophie got softer to George, and she showed him in other ways she was proud of him. As the summer went on, George felt in a good mood about things. He cleaned the house every day as a favor to Sophie, and he enjoyed the ball games more. Sophie gave him a buck a week allowance, and though it still wasn't enough, and he had to use it carefully, it was a hell of a lot better than just having two bits now and then. What he bought with the money, cigarettes mostly, an occasional beer or movie ticket, he got a big kick out of. Life wasn't so bad if he knew how to appreciate it. 
Occasionally, he bought a paperback book from the newsstand, but he never got around to reading it, though he was glad to have a couple of books in his room. But he read thoroughly Sophie's magazines and newspapers. And at night was the most enjoyable time, because when he passed the storekeepers sitting outside their stores, he could tell they regarded him highly. He walked erect, and though he did not say much to them or they to him, he could feel approval on all sides. A couple of nights he felt so good that he skipped the park at the end of the evening. He just wandered in the neighborhood, where people had known him from the time he was a kid playing punch ball whenever there was a game of it going. He wandered there, then came home and got dressed for bed, feeling fine. For a few weeks he had talked only once with Mr. Katanzara, and though the changemaker had said nothing more about the books, asked no questions, his silence made George a little uneasy. For a while George didn't pass in front of Mr. Katanzara's house anymore, until one night, forgetting himself, he approached it from a different direction than he usually did when he did. It was already past midnight, the street, except for one or two people, was deserted, and George was surprised when he saw Mr. Catanzara still reading his newspaper by the light of the street lamp overhead. His impulse was to stop at the stoop and talk to him. He wasn't sure what he wanted to say, though he felt the words would come when he began to talk. But the more he thought about it, the more the idea scared him, and he decided he'd better not. He even considered beating it home by another street, but he was too near Mr. Catanzara, and the changemaker might see him as he ran and get annoyed. So George unobtrusively crossed the street, trying to make it seem as if he had to look in a store window on the other side, which he did, and then went on, uncomfortable at what he was doing. He feared Mr. Catanzara would glance up from his paper and call him a dirty rat for walking on the other side of the street. But all he did was sit there, sweating through his undershirt, his bald head shining in the dim light as he read his times and upstairs his fat wife leaned out of the window, seeming to read the paper along with him. George thought she would spy him and yell out to Mr. Catanzara, but she never moved her eyes off her husband. George made up his mind to stay away from the changemaker until he got some of his softback books read, but when he started them and saw they were mostly storybooks, he lost his interest and didn't bother to finish them. He lost his interest in reading other things too. Sophie's magazines and newspapers went unread, she saw them piling up on a chair in his room and asked why he was no longer looking at them, and George told her it was because of all the other reading he had to do. Sophie said she had guessed that was it. So for most of the day, George had the radio on turning to music when he was sick of the human voice. He kept the house fairly neat, and Sophie said nothing on the days when he neglected it. She was still kind and gave him extra buck, though things weren't so good for him as they had been before. But they were good enough, considering. Also, his night walks invariably picked him up, no matter how bad the day was. Then one night, George saw Mr. Catanzara coming down the street toward him. George was about to turn and run, but he recognized from Mr. Catanzara's walk that he was drunk, and if so, probably he would not even bother to notice him. So George kept on walking straight ahead until he came abreast of Mr. Catanzara, and though he felt wound up enough to pop into the sky... He was not surprised when Mr. Catanzara passed him without a word, walking slowly, his face and body stiff. George drew a breath in relief at his narrow escape when he heard his name called, and there stood Mr. Catanzara at his elbow, smelling like the inside of a beer barrel. His eyes were sad as he gazed at George, and George felt so intensely uncomfortable he was tempted to shove the drunk aside and continue on his walk. 
but he couldn't act that way to him. And besides, Mr. Catanzara took a nickel out of his pants pocket and handed it to him. Go buy yourself a lemon ice, Georgie. It's not that time anymore, Mr. Catanzara, George said. I am a big guy now. No, you ain't, said Mr. Catanzara, to which George made no reply he could think of. How are all your books coming along now, Mr. Catanzara asked. Though he tried to stand steady, he swayed a little. Fine, I guess, said George, feeling the red crawling up his face. You ain't sure? The changemaker smiled slyly, a way George had never seen him smile. Sure, I'm sure. They're fine. Though his head swayed in little arcs, Mr. Catanzara's eyes were steady. He had small blue eyes, which could hurt if you looked at them too long. George, he said, name me one book on that list that you read this summer, and I will drink to your health. I don't want anybody drinking to me. Name me one, so I can ask you a question on it. Who can tell? If it's a good book, maybe I might want to read it myself. George knew he looked passable on the outside, but inside he was crumbling apart. Unable to reply, he shut his eyes, but when, years later, he opened them, he saw that Mr. Catanzara had, out of pity, gone away. But in his ears he still heard the words he had said when he left. George, don't do what I did. The next night he was afraid to leave his room, and though Sophie argued with him, he wouldn't open the door. What are you doing in there? she asked. Nothing. Aren't you reading? No. She was silent a minute, then asked, Where do you keep the books you read? I never see any in your room outside of a few cheap trashy ones. He wouldn't tell her. In that case, you're not worth a buck of my hard-earned money. Why should I break my back for you? Go on out, you bum, and get a job. He stayed in his room for almost a week, except to sneak into the kitchen when nobody was home. Sophie railed him, then begged him to come out, and his old father wept, but George wouldn't budge, though the weather was terrible and his small room stifling. He found it very hard to breathe. Each breath was like drawing a flame into his lungs. One night, unable to stand the heat anymore, he burst into the street at 1 a.m., a shadow of himself. He hoped to sneak to the park without being seen, but there were people all over the block, wilted and listless, waiting for a breeze. George lowered his eyes and walked, in disgrace, away from them. But before long he discovered they were still friendly to him. He figured Mr. Catanzara hadn't told on him. Maybe when he woke up out of his drunk the next morning, he had forgotten all about meeting George. George felt his confidence slowly come back to him. That same night, a man on a street corner asked him if it was true that he had finished reading so many books, and George admitted he had. The man said it was a wonderful thing for a boy his age to read so much. Yeah, George said, but he felt relieved. He hoped nobody would mention the books anymore, and when after a couple of days he accidentally met Mr. Catanzara again, he didn't, though George had the idea he was the one who had started the rumor that he had finished all the books. One evening in the fall, George ran out of his house to the library, where he hadn't been in years. There were books all over the place, wherever he looked, and though he was struggling to control an inward trembling, he easily counted off a hundred, then sat down at the table to read. That was Alexander Hemon reading Bernard Malamud's story, A Summer's Reading, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1956 and can be found in The Complete Stories of Bernard Malamud, 
published in paperback by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Sasha, this story is very specific in its details and its setting, but at the same time, there's something somewhat universal about this sort of lazy slacker who wants everyone to think he's very smart. Do you think that young men today would identify with him? I think to some extent, if young men today were to read books, in some ways, again, it's a 19th century story. George has no other things to do. That is, he either reads or doesn't read, and there's nothing else to do. But there's radio, that is. So there's, you know, something so wonderfully archaic about this story. It's before the television. Malamud also grew up in New York, obviously, a little, a little bit earlier than the story is said, and he lost his mother when he was a teenager. Do you think that there's something of him in George? Well, I think if, if there is something of him, is the love or the developing love for the books. What I always found interesting about the generation of Malamud and Bello and Roth is how they want to be cool young men in some ways. And in that coolness, books figured very importantly. Augie March, he's all about books. And there's a great Bellow story, Something to Remember Me By, about a boy in Chicago who you know, get, runs into trouble, but he carries a, a book in his pocket at all times, and all the world's wisdom comes from the books. And there was this mythology of the book in that generation of writers that is kind of obsolescent, if not obsolete, these days. Well, actually, it's interesting. One of the things that is interesting to me in this story is that this entire very working-class, blue-collar immigrant neighborhood has a respect for reading and a respect for someone who they think is, is simply sitting around reading, not working. And I'm not sure that you would find that degree of admiration for literature in an immigrant neighborhood now. Probably not, but then the implication here is not only reading, but he can read in English, which is hard for you know a previous generation. I think there is still admiration among immigrant communities when their children can have full access to the language that they live in, which is not always the case you know for their parents. Mm-hmm. 
Stoyanovich, tell me if I'm wrong, I think it means sort of a reference to standing in one place, the sort of staying put. Yeah. He, he seems to suffer from this sort of terrible inertia. But what do you think is causing that inertia? Well, it could be, you know, the inability to make a choice. We could extrapolate psychological reasons for George's indecision, but structurally or from the point of view of Malamud constructing a work of art, it allows him to tell the story while we're waiting for George to make some sort of decision that is prompted by his shame. And it's this shame in some ways that the reader, I think, can identify with, where you imagine yourself better than you really are, and then you have to follow through. And that discrepancy between who you think you are and who you really are, that can cause paralysis. Yeah, for George, it seems to be it's a, it's a discrepancy between who he wants to be and who he is. He just, he wants to be, or he wants people to think he's the kind of person who would read a hundred books. He doesn't necessarily want to be the kind of person who would. <laughs> right, yes. But it's a fantasy. There was this study, and it was written up in the New York Times, that suggested that people imagine themselves as characters in their life story, and then they act accordingly, or try to act accordingly. At the same time, George can't stand made-up stories. He has a strong resistance to fiction. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing about the names in the story, Catanzara means, uh, in Italian, means chained. Yeah. Stojanovich means, you know, staying in place, and, and Catanzara means chained in place. Right. So it seems as though Malamud is making a distinction between these people. Catanzara has no choice, and uh, uh, George could move. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know that. Ironically, he, he keeps referring to Catanzara as a change maker. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose the change that he's making is in George's life, not in not in his right. own. Uh, well, Malamud has all these soft touches. They they come out naturally, and you would not even think about them twice because you know he does not show off in his sentences, like some people we know. <laughs> And and then suddenly you realize that, you know, every word has weight. Well, he also, he always, he has a habit of sort of including a moral in most of his stories. Yeah. Um, they're, they're like fables in that way. Yeah, well, that's 19th century. That's, in some ways, it even precedes Chekhov, as it were. Mm-hmm. Because there's, you know, a strong moral aspect to all the stories that the epiphanies people have are moral, not psychological. If there's self-knowledge at the end of the story, it's it's moral self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what's the moral here, to, to carry through on what you say? Or? Well, yeah, I have to, you know, you're bound by your promises to the community or you are um, bound by your fantasies of yourself. You have to act upon your fantasies of yourself because in some ways, very strangely, other people might be dependent on your fantasies of yourself. Mm-hmm. What is touching in the story is that everyone wants George to be a reader. His sister, his father, his father weeps when he finds out that he doesn't read books, (laughs) you know. And and the father who doesn't talk much, he just weeps because his son has not read enough. Yeah. There's also a a certain comic timing in this story. I mean, his sentences are very simple, but there are lines where you hear this kind of humorous intonation in them. Um, I know Malamud said he learned a lot from Charlie Chaplin about the sort of rhythm of comedy and and how to put the funny with the sad. Well, again, you know, Chekhov comes to mind Nabokov said about Chekhov that he wrote sad books for humorous people, (laughs) that you couldn't see the sadness of the stories or the books unless you had a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And for this to be possible in Chekhov, and it's the same thing in Malamud's case, is that you have to love your people. That's what I like about Chekhov and also Malamud. He likes his people. George, 
he's liked by Malamud and then by the reader. Mm-hmm. As passive and as, you know, um, a little dumb he is and, you know, as, as, as much as he brags about himself. These people are good people, you have a sense. And if they slip morally, so to speak, there is a way to redress that. And they have a way of learning how to redress their moral missteps. Has, has Malamud had an effect on your own writing? I mean, you also, it's very different, obviously, but you also write a lot about uh, immigration to the U.S. I think one of the things, and I, I, I have to say I've, I've arrived at this separately, but I was very happy when I found out that Malamud, who writes about immigrants a lot, he, for instance, never fakes their accents, but rather gives them a particular kind of syntax, which you can recognize as, as foreign, but also you, their sentences their um, utterings, they sound like poetry to me. It's a particular kind of music, and I really like that. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things in Malamu. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. Alexander Hemon's latest novel is The Lazarus Project, which is published by Riverhead. You can read some of his stories and memoirs on our website, newyorker.com. Also on newyorker.com are more than a dozen previous fiction podcasts, as well as other free New Yorker podcasts. Or visit the iTunes store and type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thank you for listening.